If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, Feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From 865 to 878, a Viking great army wreaked havoc on the kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England. Though it was a relatively short burst of activity, it had long-term consequences. Professor Julian Richards of York University has been researching the army and has written a new book along with Professor Dawn Hadley explaining the latest findings. Our content director, David Musgrove, spoke to him to find out more. So today I am speaking to Professor Julian Richards about the Viking Great Army. Julian is the author, along with uh, Professor Dawn Hadley, of the new book, The Viking Great Army and the Making of England. So Julian, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Nice to meet you. Good, good. Um, Thanks for for coming on. So um, first thing, uh, just a little question of terminology that we ought to um, talk about to start with. I, t- I like to do this on all um, t- topics uh, around this area. We're talking, uh, the traditional terminology would be t- uh, Vikings and Anglo-Saxons. Are you comfortable with using those words or, or, or do you feel we need to use use different terminology in this context? Um, well, uh, Vikings is uh, not a contemporary term that was uh, used at, at the time, but it's become to be uh, commonly used. Um, Anglo-Saxon is a little bit uh, difficult because, particularly for a North American uh, readership, it has um, so racist connotations in the way that it's become to be used in the in the states. Uh, it was a term 
that was used at the time in indeed King Alfred the Great, one of the great kings of Anglo-Saxon England, explicitly called himself a king of the of the English Saxons to distinguish it from the uh, the Saxons overseas. Um, so we have used the term Anglo-Saxon England in in our book. Okay. Right, so let's talk about uh, the the Viking Great Army then. Can you just uh, introduce us to that? What was it and when did it operate? Okay, well, the the Viking Great Army we know about from one of our few contemporary uh, historical sources, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, and it says that a a Mickelherra, which is literally the, uh, the old English for a great army, Mickle, as in great Hera army, uh, and a Mickle Hera landed in East Anglia in the year 865 AD. And it then goes on to recount in a, a series of uh, yearly uh, records where that great army moved and what battles it fought and specifically where it spent it, its winters. Uh, and it carried on uh, fighting uh, with different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms around the, the, the country until uh, the year 878, when it was uh, famously defeated by King Alfred at the Battle of Eddington in the, the, the southwest of, of England. Um, and it, uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle only makes very brief references uh, and until recently, we didn't really know very much more about the army, uh, about its size or what it was actually doing, uh, other than the being told where it spent the winters. Uh, but this was what was special about it was that previously uh, Viking armies had uh, tended to be uh, hit and run affairs, that they would just attack. Um, quite isolated and undefended coastal monasteries, uh, particularly on the the eastern coast of of the British Isles, uh, grab slaves and treasure and then go away again. But the difference was that the Great Army uh, was that it it did overwinter in in England. Uh, It was clearly had strategic plans to to stay and ultimately it uh, transformed its activities from raiding and just seizing slaves and and silver to uh, seizing land and it led into permanent settlement. Thank you. And so you mentioned there that it was different to previous raids and the context here is that there had been uh, Scandinavian raids uh, along the British seaboard. Um, the most famous one uh, would be 793, the Lindisfarne raid. Um, exactly. So, so we've got 70, 80 years or so of, of, uh, of Viking activity, raiding activity prior to this. So that's that's the context. Exactly, yes. And um, so, you, so, so you, you've, you've outlined the different uh, approach that uh, the Viking Great Army took to these previous raids. Do we know what what drove that? Why why was this um, sort of change in tack taken? I think it it saw opportunities. It had been raiding in Ireland, or uh, elements of it had been uh, raiding in Ireland and uh, on the uh, in continental Europe in uh, what's now France. Uh, during the 850s and 860s um, and uh, probably uh, heard that uh, in England at the time there was a lot of uh, 
uh, fighting going on between uh, the four main Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of the uh, of the time: uh, uh, Mercia, East Anglia, uh, Northumbria, and, and Wessex, which uh, ruled in different parts of uh, of England. Uh, they were squabbling amongst themselves, and uh, clearly these. Um, coastal raids, almost sort of reconnoitring raids, had seen um, uh, the wealth that was available, uh, particularly in uh, Anglo-Saxon churches and monasteries, uh, and the Vikings were always opportunists. And I think what happened was things got a little bit difficult for them on the the continent in the 860s, that the Carolingian Empire there got a bit better organised at uh, defeating the Viking armies, so they saw uh, the chance of better pickings in England. And had there been much? So I, I said that the first race started in the seven nineties in Britain, and, and and we're moving into the eight sixties. Had there been much change in in society in uh, Scandinavia in, in the Viking homelands during that period? Uh, Has there been much 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 difference there? Yeah. So that and that's also a. Um, a significant uh, aspect of of this because um uh, what what we see in Scandinavia uh really developing from the uh, uh the the 8th but particularly into the 9th centuries is the uh, development of what we now call uh states uh and and what archaeologists and historians sometimes call state formation uh, as uh, power becomes concentrated in the hands of fewer individuals. And they're not called kings or, or queens in Scandinavia at the, at the time, uh, but they are, in effect, leaders of uh, lar- increasingly larger groups of people, territories being organised on a, on a larger scale. Uh, and uh, we're starting to see uh, the development of of uh, more overseas contacts as well, and particularly developments in trade. Uh, and so in Scandinavia in the uh, uh, 9th uh, century, we start to see the development of trading sites, uh, usually coastal uh, sites, uh, which become emporia, really, for uh, merchants from all over uh, Europe. They have contacts uh, going into Eastern Europe, down the main uh, Russian river systems as well across the Baltic, and also uh, contacts to the west, which is another factor in the uh, why the Vikings are gaining good intelligence about what's happening in in England. Um, so I think that th- there is also, as well as a pull factor of the attraction of what's of of wealth in the British Isles, there's also a bit of a push factor going on in in changes that are happening in Scandinavia uh, and as people are trying to acquire more power uh, they're, they're looking overseas as a way of, of uh, gaining wealth and gaining status um, in, in uh, uh, the, the, their quest for uh, greater status. Now we've talked about uh, the Viking Great Army uh, given it its, its, uh, its name there and it's operating for a, a little over a decade or so. Is it um, is it one army? Is it one cohesive thing? Um, and is that name? Where does that name come from? Um, to, is that yeah? No, it's, it's yeah. Um, it's it's definitely not uh, a single army in the way that we would think of an army. It's um, a loose association of 
different warrior groups, probably related to individual ships' companies at the uh, at the basic level. Um, uh, probably uh, initial originating in parts of Scandinavia, but as they've been raiding in Ireland and in uh, on the continent as well, gathering more. Uh, uh, warriors as they go. It's important to think, although it's, we call it a Viking army, it's not just Scandinavians. There were probably Irish and continental mercenaries uh, in amongst the force. Um, they probably owe their loyalty to the individual leaders uh, who are rewarding them uh, for their service in battle by passing on their share of the silver. Uh, and in turn, there's a, a, probably a lot of competition between the different uh, leaders of these different war bands. Uh, and that's what's special about the Great Army. Uh, uh, the name does, is, is only used uh, by the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle uh, to reflect the fact that this is pulling together a number of these individual war bands. And I think it represents a change in strategy um, to allow them to take on uh, some of the larger Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and, and to to have the uh, strength to stay put over winter as well so they don't have to, to leave after each winter because they've got these these greater numbers. And in turn, e- even during the um, uh, 860s into 870s, it seems to be joined by other groups. We're told at one point that there's a, a, a great summer force uh, a summer army that comes and joins with the great army to make it even larger, even greater. Uh, but also we're told of an of a incident uh, after one particular overwintering in 873-4 where the army splits again and one group heads north and uh, another group um, uh, heads into East Anglia and then back in, into Wessex. So you've mentioned that there, there's, there's individual warlords. Can you maybe introduce us to a few of the characters who we are historically aware of who sort of figure in this story yeah the, yes the, the, they tend to be quite colorful uh, characters and um, we're not told a lot about them in the contemporary historical sources and some of the traditions come from later uh, sources so we don't know how reliable they are but um one of the ones we know a little bit more about, it's one of the original leaders of the Great Army, was uh, someone called Guthrum. Uh, and Guthrum we, we know about because uh, he uh, comes up consistently through the, uh, uh, the records. And indeed, he's one of the people mentioned in uh, this reference of 873 to, uh, to 4 after the overwintering there, that he's the one who carries on, on fighting and takes his group of the army into East Anglia uh, and then carries on fighting against the Kingdom of, of Wessex. And he's famously uh, defeated by Alfred at the Battle of Eddington and Alfred uh, demands that hostages and also that Guthrum converts to Christianity. Um, and Guthrum is subsequently baptised with 30 of his, his warriors and then becomes a king almost in an Anglo-Saxon style himself in East Anglia and is allowed to to rule there uh, as, a, as a king almost in, in English style for some time. Um, there are other characters we know about, Hjalfden, uh, who was a contemporary uh, leader of the Great Army, also at, at 
at uh, the overwintering of 873 to 4. Uh, but he, after the army splits, uh, moves back to uh, Northumbria, uh, to the northern part of England, uh, where ultimately we're told that they seize the land of the Northumbrians and proceed to plough themselves, plough and support themselves. Um, so he is with uh, different strategies and different rates of really assimilation uh, and takeover of uh, Anglo-Saxon lands from the different rulers. What about uh, Abba? Oh yeah, yeah, he's a, 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 a another uh, a colourful uh, character who, who, yeah, we don't know don't know a lot about him. And do we? And is Ivar the boneless? Does he feature in this story? Uh, yes, he 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 does. Um, and there are various interpretations of how he got the name uh, boneless, um, but uh, he's also uh, uh, was one of the uh, initial leaders that landed. Uh, we think in uh, in eight six five, and is also at this uh, uh, potentially at this overwintering in Repton. Uh, in in which I keep mentioning, uh, but of eight seven three to four, but Repton is in uh, in Derbyshire, in the in the Midlands, and was uh, uh, part of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Mercia, one of their key strongholds. And either the uh, uh, the boneless is associated with with that. He may have gone off to Ireland at, at, at some stage as well. There's a reference to him there, and the, it's one of the confusions that these names, in slightly different forms, keep turning up in different parts of of the British Isles. So we've got some quite colourfully named characters, and, and possibly some colourful detail from from the historical sources. And, and I guess um, uh, readers or viewers of Bernard Cornwell's novels might, uh, might might identify some of those names from his uh, uh, his Last Kingdom books, where where people of those names appear. And, and maybe we'll talk about your your views on that. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but but maybe we'll come to that. Yes, at the yeah, end no, it's a, it's a the excellent uh, series actually, and very, uh, very well researched. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll chat about it at the end. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, so. We've talked about kind of what we know uh, historically from historical sources about it, and as you said, it's, it's a, possibly a fairly small picture that you get from from the historical source about what this uh, this army was up to. Um, your uh, and, and Professor Hadley, your co-author, your archaeologist, principally, um, so you're bringing a, a, a different dimension to it. So, so what have you learned? What have what have been the areas that you've been researching that have uh, informed us about uh, uh, this army's activities? Okay, so yeah. I mean, I think as I, I mentioned, we didn't until recently know a lot about the army archaeologically. There had been uh, one excavation at uh, at the site of, of Repton, uh, not initially looking for the Viking Great Army, actually looking at the Mercian uh, Church, the uh, the shrine of, uh, of Saint Whiston, uh, which is under the uh, the modern church in the village. Uh, but that had encountered uh, some Viking uh, burials and had also found evidence for which the excavators thought was uh, part of the Viking camp in a, a fortification. And that really was the only one of these uh, camps that had been discovered. And it set an agenda, really, for uh, what archaeologists were looking for. And everyone was looking for uh, small earthwork en- enclosures uh but we 
where Dawn and I have been working is uh, particularly looking at the increasing amount of evidence that we get from uh, metal detectorists, not archaeologists, but many of these detectorists report their finds to a national scheme run by the British Museum. Uh, and we can start to find out a lot more about the Viking Great Army from the things that they lost and, and left behind and are now recovered by uh, metal detectorists. And there was one particular site that we became interested in at a place called uh, Torxey in uh, Lincolnshire, which again is in the uh, the Midlands. It was part of, of, of Mercia. And uh, like Repton, it's on a river. Uh, it's on the on the River Trent, uh, a navigable river. And Torxey again is a place that is mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as somewhere that the Viking Great Army overwintered. Actually, the year before they were at Repton, uh, we're told that uh, uh, that the the Hera winter took winter settle winter camp at, at Torxey uh, in the overwintering of eight seven two to three. Now, uh, today. Uh, Torxey is just a, a, a small village. Uh, there is nothing uh, that would indicate there was a Viking camp uh, there in the in the late ninth century. But over the years, a number of metal detectorists have started to discover some incredible uh, finds just north of the village, uh, in an area of about a large area of about six fields, and they were recovering um, really quite spectacular finds. Uh, a lot of silver, both uh, coins and silver ingots and bits of uh, silver jewellery that had been cut up. And these are familiar to Viking archaeologists. We call them hack silver uh, because they're cut up and weighed out. They're part of a bullion economy. They were also finding a lot of Anglo-Saxon coins, unusually for coins from uh, Northumbria, from further north, that don't usually occur in, in Mercia. And also lots of cut up bits of, of other metalwork, bits of Irish uh, jewellery, uh, bits of Irish book mounts as well, uh, even. Um, and so these are very unusual uh, finds. And so we worked with the detectorist to plot where they, the, the finds were coming from. And it was an area of about six fields, uh, much larger than the camp that had been identified at Repton. No evidence for a fortified enclosure, but it covered an area of some uh, 55 hectares. That's um, in um, modern terms, you can think of it in terms of about 75 football pitches to give you an idea of the, of the scale of this. Clearly a very large uh, camp, uh, which uh, really changed our uh, impression of, uh, uh, the scale of the of the army, because a, an army camped at Repton would have no, could only have numbered in the uh, in the few hundreds, and there had been a lot of debate between historians and archaeologists as to really how large this great army was. Had it uh, its name been given them by Anglo-Saxon clerics who wanted to exaggerate the, the scale of the Viking threat, and probably only numbered uh, a few ships, uh, whereas. What we found from Torxey, and now I can go on to, to, to tell you about some of the other camps that we now know about, they're on a much larger scale. So they've given us information both about the uh, the size of the army, but what it's actually doing when it's, it's overwintering. And basically, uh, that seems to be processing uh, loot. 
that they've gathered over the, uh, the raiding period. They're cutting it up. We've got from talks evidence for metalworking, uh, for uh, melting down things, coins turning them into uh, uh, to ingots. And no doubt there's trading going on, uh, as well as a variety of other things. One of the 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 most interesting uh, uh, finds is not for us is is not necessarily the silver and indeed gold ingots uh, but tiny lead objects uh, which are um, gaming pieces and it seems one of the things that the, these viking warriors were doing when they were overwintering was uh, they had a, a great love of games and we think they were playing a, a variant of a sort of strategy game. Uh, in later sources, it's known as Scandinavian uh, word nefertafel. Um, but uh, it's it's probably closest to chess in that there is a, a one side has a king piece that the other side is trying to, uh, to capture. But anyway, these these tiny lead gaming pieces, uh, we've now got over three hundred of them from uh, from Torxy. And as I can go on to, to tell you, they've started to give us a, a signature, uh, which we can now see at other sites in England. And that's where our uh, research has gone, is from the evidence from, from Torxy. We're now starting to be able to, uh, uh, to trace the Viking Great Army uh, as it moves around the country. And this is all really coming from uh, metal detected uh, evidence in the last 10 years and and is revealing sites to us that we never knew about before are not mentioned in the historical sources so it's a case of where the archaeology and the metal detecting is really adding to what we know from the history um, i'm very pleased that you pronounced nefertatl because um i uh i, well, I mangled it then and i, and I, uh, I think i mangled it every time i did a podcast interview with uh, david petz about uh, uh, a, a gaming piece that was found up in Lindisfarne um a couple of years uh, ago and, right, and, yes. uh, and uh, messed it up there but yeah it's a, a fascinating game what's the pronunciation again again what do you mean uh, uh, nefertatl 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 yes we should we should do a podcast about uh, whether you can actually play that game today or not. Um, I, I guess well, you can I guess you can uh, buy a reconstructed game, um, but uh, from our knowledge of the rules, it's a very one sided game, which might have suited the uh, uh, the Vikings because the uh, the attacking pieces have far more pieces than the uh, uh, the defenders who are trying to protect their king. Uh, so maybe there was a reason they liked it, ah. but um, I think probably think for Vikings, it, I mean, it was a game of strategy. But we suspect it, they were great gamblers as well, and we suspect that there was uh, uh, money changing hands or wealth changing hands over over games of uh, uh, of Nefertafel. One of the other finds we have from the uh, the camp are these very small cut up pieces of uh, of. Of, of silver, particularly a lot of very small Arabic uh, coins, uh, what we know as, as Islamic dirhams, which have come all the way uh, from the Silk Roads of, of the Middle East and ended up in a field in, in Lincolnshire. Uh, but they progressively get smaller and smaller, and we think they were using them as gambling chips uh, in their uh, uh, games of strategy. It's fascinating insights you get. So, how many? Uh, we talked a little bit about the size of this army, and you said you've sort of uh, uh, moved the size up from what we thought it might have been a Repton. So, how many? How many Vikings can you fit in seventy-five um, football pitches? This is right. Quite a quite a lot. Not, um, we've got to remember it wouldn't just be Viking warriors uh, there. There'd be traders and, and craftsmen. Some of them doubling up as, as fighters, but also uh, 
women and children um, on the camp as well. So it was, in a sense, it was a it was a little town uh, there, uh, but far larger than the, uh, these contemporary emerging trading sites that we have information from from Scandinavia. Uh, far larger than those, larger than uh, English towns at the uh, of the time. Uh, could be, uh, I mean, we it's impossible to know the precise figures, and it wouldn't have all been densely occupied. Uh, but um, we probably think probably about 5,000 in the order of, of, of that sort of number in total on the camp, hmm. um, which is, is interesting because it implies quite a high level of organisation. Uh, you can't just, 5,000 people can't just uh, turn up and pitch their, their tents uh, anywhere and you have to have areas where craft activity is taking place and, and you need to know where you can uh, find the people baking bread, for example, and so forth. So it must have been uh, organised probably uh, with groups around the ship's companies. Um, in yeah. fact, that, that would have been the basic fighting unit and also the basic unit where they were, were camping. Uh, so it, in, in a sense, it is uh, a town, but a town that's on the move. Hmm. So, so yeah, as you said, sort of, if it was highly organised, that's complicated by the fact that, as you were saying earlier, there's not necessarily one overarching leader here. So we we have to assume that there's there must have been some organisational structure whereby people were were interacting with each other. Yes, ex- exactly. There must have been uh, agreements and and, and discussion uh, amongst the, the the different leaders of the group about where their different war bands would uh, uh, camp. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there must have been. Uh, agreement with them as to where they were going to move uh, each winter and, and where and the discussion about where they were going to uh, campaign next based on the intelligence that they'd uh, gathered from the countryside from from what your 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 sense of it is it would it been a comfortable place to spend a winter or an extremely uncomfortable place well it's certainly not now when we've been uh, doing field work at there it's exposed to all the winds from across the uh, the, the North Sea, um, and inevitably I think would have been quite a uh, a cold and, and wet uh, place. It uh, the name uh, Talksy, although um, it's it's now as I mentioned a, a, a village, and we think its derivation is from. Uh, Turksy uh, or or Turksy, and that literally means Turks or Turks Island. Now there isn't an island there uh, today, but we've been doing some uh, geomorphological studies where you study the landscape and try and understand what it was like in the in the past. And that's revealed actually that uh, the area of the camp is the highest ground, and it's got the River Trent on one side uh, below almost a cliff edge. But round the other side of the camp, it's now dry land. Uh, but in the late 9th century, uh, it would have been um, uh, very marshy. And indeed, there were offshoots of the of the River Trent that ran part of the way round until it had silted up. So that area would have been very waterlogged. And so in effect, um, the clue was in the name, uh, Turks or Turks Island, uh, Turk being a sort of a, a Britonic, uh, British sort of personal name. We don't know anything more about that character. But uh, the reason why the Vikings chose it and why they didn't need defences at Torxy was, in effect, it was a uh, a defended site by its natural uh, location. And we start to see that in, in other areas as well now that we know what we're looking for. 
All right, you've preempted my next question, which was, is there anything to suggest the Vikings were worried about their defence? But So they have natural defences. So were they not worried about um, uh, um, Anglo-Saxon attacks on them in, the, in these winter sessions? Well, it, do, it doesn't appear to be at, uh, at Torxley because of the natural defences and also, as we mentioned, the, the, the size of the army. Would have, it would have been quite difficult for, a, uh, for an Anglo-Saxon force to... to uh, it, to sneak up on them, so it would have, have needed very a very large army as as well. And at that stage in Anglo-Saxon England, there wasn't a standing army in any case. Okay, so um, uh, and should we imagine uh, a, a sort of constant flow of ships backwards and forwards between this settlement and and Scandinavia at this point, or is this a static yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah, I think it, that's a, a good point. Um, I mean, I think there has been a, a view that. Uh, uh, with the winter camps that the Vikings sort of were holed up uh, there over winters. And we don't think that's actually could have been the case uh, uh, at all. Uh, they didn't need to, they were strong enough that they didn't need to stay just within the uh, the camp. They would have had to go out to start with uh, for to gather uh, provisions and supplies. If you imagine an encampment of some uh, 5,000 uh, individuals, uh, then you need to go send out foraging parties. I mean, one of the reasons why they chose these places, I think they were in fairly rich areas where there would have been a lot of uh, tithe barns full of of uh, hams and, and grain and so forth that had been stored by the Anglo-Saxons that they were seeing. But all, they were probably also trading with the locals. You can imagine as well that they would have brought food supplies into the camp. So you can imagine chickens and uh, running around and pigs as uh, as well as within the camp. So that's just within that they're moving with the local area. But also, uh, yes, there must have been frequent contact, probably not in the winter, but during the summers, uh, there were groups probably going backwards and forwards to Scandinavia as we mentioned that there were other forces coming across joining them uh, and uh, some of the Vikings would have been returning uh, home and we see in fact we see traces of some of the distinctive objects even gaming pieces we've now started to see turning up in some of the trading sites in the continent Uh, so one of the the best known ones is in uh, now in northern Germany, uh, southern uh, in southern Denmark, a, a site called Hedeby, which is a well-known sort of trading town of the ninth century, and there are some lead gaming pieces from there, otherwise unknown from Scandinavia, uh, but probably brought back from a warrior uh, uh, who'd been in by a warrior who'd been in Torxley or one of the other uh, winter camps in England and and returned home, taking some gaming pieces with him. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's not the end of uh, the story of, of Viking conquests of England, but this great army does mark a, a, a mark change in strategy uh, and the subsequent armies are generally coming um, for political conquest and, and to seize land rather than just as temporary raiding forces. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. So these these winter camps that you've identified, Repton talks in, and the other ones that you've um, that you've been looking at, um, sh- should we imagine that, that these are centers in a sort of a uh, um, in a militarized land? Are, you, are they occupying a hub, and then if they go outside, they're in danger, or are they in control of the of the land around them? Yeah, I think we're getting a, a, a picture now that they are in control because, as well as these uh, the hubs, uh, the the camps. Uh, again, using the the signature artifacts, we're starting to see a number of other sites, often at strategic locations, but along the rivers and along the uh, the road system as well. That must have been um, almost lookout uh, posts that they could have uh, kept an eye for any uh, threat to them. So there's another uh, site just up river from uh, Torquay at a, a, a place called uh, uh, Littleborough. Uh, which is on a crossing point of of the Trent, where an ancient Roman road went over the Trent. And that's also got a few um, of the types of finds that are distinctive of the winter camps uh, there. So we think that that's just one example. And we've now identified over 30 uh, previously unknown sites scattered uh, throughout eastern England, but generally on uh, rivers and road systems uh, where offshoots of the army foraging parties lookout groups uh, must have been based there for at least a a period of time long enough to have have lost a few bits of silver and a few uh, bits of hack silver and a few gaming pieces and again this is evidence coming from metal detectors. Um, So what I'm trying to get out there is whether whether they were in any way sort of welcomed in this land at this point can we can we sort of can you make a a guess on that well i mean if we if we take the um historical sources literally and and and, yeah bear in mind these are uh written by uh alfred and and his biographers then they're they're definitely not uh they're described as as heathen they were totally different from the anglo-saxons they had no respect for the the church uh they were uh looting and seizing uh, uh slaves at the same time we do know that some of the uh, uh, the rival uh, english kings or clay, uh, english claimants were at various times allying themselves with uh, Viking groups uh, for their own advantage. Um, so, in in some cases, they were, um, in a sense, being welcomed. In that that, that uh, Anglo-Saxon could see uh, an advantage uh, to these alliances. Um, what else have you learned about the impact of the of the Great Army beyond the camps on the on urban areas and, and elsewhere in the countryside? You've talked about that a little bit just now, but any other yeah, interesting developments? Yes, I mean well. Uh, 
Our book ends with the sort of longer term impact of the uh, of the Viking Great Army, uh, because um, as we've already mentioned, uh, as the period of it moving around and and beating the different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms comes to an end, it has it makes a series of land partitions basically in in the different kingdoms where it seizes land and we see evidence for uh, more permanent settlement uh, new rural sites established by what must have been uh, uh, smaller leaders within the uh, the army who are in effect becoming uh, the lords of, of that area so we see a, an impact both on the english countryside but then also uh, an impact on uh, uh, town development and particularly in in the terms of industry and one of the uh, again very interesting things about Torxi is that when the viking great army leaves um at Torxi and moves on to repton it appears that it left behind a group of potters um and these because we find the uh, evidence to the south of the village uh, the other side of the, where the winter camp was, but the development in the late 9th century and the, then into the early 10th century of one of the largest pottery industries in England, uh, known as producing Torxy ware, which is a very distinctive, hard, pimply, gritty fabric of, of pottery. It's unlike previous Anglo-Saxon pottery, it's wheel-thrown, it's hard-fired, it's manufactured on an industrial scale. This wasn't uh, pots that were being made in Scandinavia at the time. They were being made, very similar uh, traditions, in continental Europe, in the Low Countries and in France. And given that the Viking army had been campaigning there, this provides evidence, we we believe, that they brought some of these potters with them uh, in their baggage train, and then the potters stayed behind when they left uh, Torxi. And then the ta- uh, Torxi grows in into uh, quite an important uh, Anglo-Saxon town. By the 11th century, uh, it's, it has a mint, it's producing coins, it has uh, four or five uh, churches. So, uh, and this is a consequence, really, we believe, of the of the Viking Great Army having overwintered there. And we, we see this in other sites that they visited as well throughout eastern England, that their longer-lasting legacy uh, is the development of industry and the establishment of, of, of towns that the industries concentrate around. So massive changes uh, in towns and in the countryside. And you, and you actually use the phrase industrial revolution, don't you? We do, yes. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, a phrase we didn't in, in, invent. Richard uh, Hodges, a, a famous Anglo-Saxon uh, a historian and archaeologist that christened the, uh, uh, the the term, but I think it's a, it's an appropriate one because uh, 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 the changes that are going on, not just in pottery production, but also in in metalwork production, in response to the uh, the demand that's created in the new towns for mass-produced jewellery, uh, for example, uh, really uh, uh, creates a, a sort of flourishing economy in the uh, in the late ninth century and into the tenth century. Um, so, so, just moving on towards the end of the of the of the Viking Great Army story specifically. So, we've talked about eight seven eight, um, the army suffering a, a defeat at the hands of Alfred. Um, was that was that 
their first defeat it would have been sort of the balance of military power between the uh, the incumbent set, uh, people in England and the, and the Viking incomers. Well, uh, it had it had uh, ebbed and flowed. Um, I mean, there was uh, right going back to the uh, earlier stages. They'd uh, uh, seized York initially in the the, the, the the capital, as it were, of Northumbria, but then being thrown out of York, they had to go back and, and uh, seize it again. Uh, so they didn't always gain the upper hand, but the the picture that we get certainly from the Chronicle is that they're winning most of the uh, uh, of the battles, um, uh, and that's partly because England was divided, and they're picking on these uh, different kingdoms in in turn. Um, and it's really not until eight seven eight uh, uh, when, well, at least in the way that uh, Alfred's biographer uh, Asser, who was, was certainly trying to sort of present him as as the greatest Anglo-Saxon king, but um, but he certainly does manage to get a lot of the Anglo-Saxon uh, lords and thanes on his side and build up an army strong enough. Uh, so that he can take on uh, this this Viking force in eight seven eight, and uh, that is the really uh, the first major defeat that they they suffer. And what happens? Does the army just sort of dissipate after that, uh, or does it, as you said, sort of go and settle in East? Yeah, Denver? no. This is where we go back to uh, sort of Alfred recognizing that uh, that the best way of dealing with them is in effect to. to and I think they were open this to turning them into uh, kings in his own image, so that they they behave in a more, uh, as it were, civilized fashion. That they and, and Guthrum, who we we mentioned, who Alfred forced to to be baptized, starts minting coins um, uh, in East Anglia, where he sets up his uh, kingdom. Um, it's not the end of the story because even though Alfred may have got those Viking uh, leaders on on side. There are other forces gathering beyond the horizon, as it were, in uh, Scandinavia. And there is then a, a succession after Alfred and his uh, successors, uh, Edward and Athelstan, gain peace for a time. But then there are other Viking armies uh, come into the late 10th century and 11th century, uh, culminating in, in uh, Sven Fortbeard and Canute and other later leaders we hear about and ultimately uh as as you well know uh william uh, uh, uh the, the conqueror from uh, from normandy who was ultimately a, a norseman and uh, comes across in in 1066 so it's not the end of uh the story of, of viking conquests of england but this great army does mark a a, a mark change in strategy uh and the Subsequent armies are generally coming um, for political conquest and, and to seize land rather than just as temporary raiding forces. So that, that sort of takes us into the into the uh, getting towards the end of this conversation. The, uh, the the second bit of the title of your book and the making of England. So the Viking Great Army and the making of England. So do you want to kind of very quickly summarise that that second clause in your title? What, how it how it uh, leads to the making of England? Yeah. So yeah. The, so. Yeah, the making of England is it's making of England in in several senses. Uh, it's both in the uh, industrial 
and trading sense that we we talked about, uh, but also in that um, indirectly the the Viking great army and the fact that uh, they uh, conquer the different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and and it leaves Wessex as predominant and uh, as the only remaining kingdom. Uh, As we said, Alfred and his successors are are victorious and they then characterise themselves as kings of England, uh, which is for the first time. Uh, So England is uh, becomes united uh, almost as a result of uh, the Viking Great Army and its attacks in the late ninth century. Can I just? I've got a, a, just a couple of, of, of quick little points, uh, interesting things that I picked up from from the book before we finish. Um, you, you've um, uh, you've made a finding about uh, the Vikings and uh, horses, bringing uh, how how far they brought horses over with them. T- tell me about that. Yeah, this is fascinating. This is work actually uh, done by uh, 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 Tessie Lerfelman, a, a, a doctoral researcher at the University of, of, of Durham. Um, and she's analysed some of the cremated uh, remains from a cemetery that I uh, excavated uh, at Heathwood, uh, a site near Repton. It was, it's the only Viking cremation cemetery in the British Isles where I believe a number of members of the Viking Great Army who attacked Repton were given a pagan burial. And uh, one of the warriors was cremated with his hunting dog and his uh, horse. And uh, uh, Tessie has done some uh, stable isotope uh, analysis of these cremated remains of the horse it's a new technique hasn't previously been able to be applied to cremated remains but it's a technique that archaeologists use to try and identify where uh, a person or in this case an animal uh, spent their childhood because it uh, uh, the water that they uh, consume goes into their their teeth and the water reflects the geological content of the area where they they grew up and she's identified that this horse uh, cremated and its remains buried uh, with its uh, uh, owner uh, in a mound, burial mound uh, near Repton, actually came from Scandinavia. That's where it, it, it grew up. So it shows us a, a remarkable uh, fact. It's the first evidence that we have that the, the Vikings were indeed bringing their animals uh, over with them. We know from uh, the later sources, the the Bayer tapestry, going back to William, that that they they depict horses on on ships which are very light biking long ships. But this is the first uh, archaeological evidence that that Tessie has uh, has uh, discovered. Uh, I wouldn't have fancied travelling across the, the the North Sea with a with a horse on a, on my ship. I must ad- admit, it was to, probably be, had to be calmed with some uh, some drugs. Uh, at the time well i mean that yeah. that is that is a fascinating point isn't it? because i've you know i'm sure you as well have been on one of these uh recreated viking ships and, and they tend to be they're, they're quite small quite narrow of beam and uh and not not great fun to travel on and as you said the bias tapestry displays all these horses being transported uh a couple of centuries later and there's a massive debate about what that means and whether there was specific horse transports used in 1066 to get them across and whether that technology had been somehow come from Sic- uh, sicily or something like that so um um, but that's that's a whole separate thing. So, do, do, what do we do? We imagine that there were lots of horses coming across with the Vikings, or is this just a, a one example? 
I think I think we have to assume this can't just be a, 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 a exceptional a one-off example. Um, I think I mean with the, the, it's interesting because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that when the uh, the Viking Great Army landed in East Anglia in eight six five, they seized horses, uh, and that they then rode north on them. And we know they were moving about by by land and by by river in, in in England, but I think this new evidence from Heathwood does demonstrate that they were also bringing horses with them, and it can't be just a a, a one-off. Um, we tend to just think of Viking longships. I'm sure in the Viking fleet uh, there were probably ships that were more like cargo ships. We do have some examples of these, admittedly later, uh, but there's no uh, reason that they might not also have existed in the... Um, in the late ninth century, which could have carried cargo, which had a, a almost a hold, a deeper draft in yeah. the centre, um, and it's probably those ships rather than on the deck of a long ship uh, that they brought the horses across. Of course, yeah, yeah of course. Um, so that I mean that's fascinating, isn't it? The stable isotope um, technology there is uh, is shedding all sorts of material. Yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah, and then just thinking about technology, just just very quickly, you, you mentioned metal detecting, and metal detecting is a theme that kind of goes through your book. The contribution of metal detectors to your research. Um, metal detecting is sometimes a, a, a difficult um, subject for archaeologists because it doesn't necessarily always work uh, for the for the archaeological community but what's what, what has been the contribution of metal detecting to your understanding of the uh, of the of this story oh it's it's, it's been tremendous in, in in the book we we talk about heroes and villains both in the in the modern period as well as in the in the Viking period and we we Metal detecting can be a problem. We have groups that are known as night hawks uh, that don't report their uh, finds. And there's been a famous case with a, a horde from the Viking Great Army that was buried uh, probably after the immediately after the Battle of, uh, of Eddington uh, at, a, at Leinster near the Welsh border. And that was discovered by... Uh, number of metal detectives who didn't report their their finds it subsequently came to light when they tried to sell them on the antiquities market and people got uh, suspicious they were eventually arrested and have been imprisoned uh, for that so there are villains and i uh, we don't try to say that all metal detectives are heroes but the ones we've worked with have been tremendous and have made a huge contribution to uh, to knowledge uh they've reported their finds they now use gps to plot exactly where they find things a lot of these finds are in the plough soil they're not taking them out of as it were sealed archaeological context they've already been disturbed by the plough and they're just going to be destroyed uh, by modern agriculture in a few years so they're they're rescuing this and as I've indicated, it sort of transformed our knowledge of the Viking Great Army from uh, just sort of one camp that turns out to be a little bit misleading. Uh, we now know about several war camps and all these other uh, sites, and we can start to uh, piece together a picture of how the army was moving around, what it was doing, and uh, the, these broader issues that we've talked about. Brilliant. And one last thing I mentioned when we were talking that uh, I'd come back to it: uh, Bernard Cornwall and the, and the Last Kingdom uh, novels. Oh. Um, so you think he's he's got it right? That's a good uh, a good representation. Yeah, of the we're, we're we're great fans of, of of that series. I mean, yes, I mean poetic license in in, in a few places where uh, things don't happen in the same order 
that they happen in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. But but yeah, I think if you want to get a, a, an impression of the way that the Vikings operated, the way they forged alliances with with one another, we we don't know that there was a, a Viking exactly like Uthred who actually uh, worked with with Alfred. But it's believable that if there was, he he might not have been reported by Asser uh, as not really fitting into the story. So I think it's a, an entirely credible story. Uh, yeah, all credit to Bernard Gordon. Brilliant. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything uh, big or important that I've missed? Any questions I should have asked you? Uh, no, but I don't. I, I, I don't think so. I think. Um, I mean, one of the exciting things uh, for us is that the the fact that we've, in in the light of the talks, the evidence, we're now starting to see other Viking camps. So there is another one. Uh, near York, uh, in fact, was previously unknown um, and again found by metal detectorists, but again covering a very large area. It's on the river. It's not mentioned at all in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, perhaps it's because it's much further north, but it's a very similar range of finds to, to Torxley. And going back to Repton, um, there are now uh, finds coming up Nearer to Heathwood, actually, the cemetery uh, from uh, feels that uh, has a place name Formark, uh, which is actually when you again when you look at the place name, it's uh, a Danish influence name. Mark is a Danish word for fortification, uh, and those are again finds with gaming pieces and so forth, like those coming from uh, Torxey and the Northumbrian site, and it seems therefore that we've now found the actual site of the main winter camp at. at uh, Repton, and that the small fortified enclosure must have just been a, a small part of it, or not even part of the of the Viking camp, the real Great Army camp, given the name Repton, but was a few kilometres away from it. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating that uh, you're able to to glean so much new information from uh, from a topic that uh, perhaps if you just looked at the documentary sources, you would think uh, was uh, there's only so much to know. But um, you've you've uncovered a whole lot more in your book, uh, The Viking Great Army and the Making of England. Uh, by yourself and uh, Professor Dawn Hadley is published by Thames and Hudson and is a great read. Thank you very much. That was Professor Julian Richards. His book, co-authored with Dawn Hadley, is The Viking Great Army and the Making of England. That's out now, published by Thames and Hudson. You can find much more Viking content on our website. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash period forward slash Viking. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.